Luke 8, verse 4. As you guys are turning there, um, I'd like to recommend a book I'm using in my sermon uh, a lot from this book, and I want to give credit to it. It's called Parables. Um, If you've ever had an interest in Jesus' parables, why he spoke in parables, um, what the parables meant, the the truth within parables is a great book, and I recommend it. Um, uh, It's written by John MacArthur. um, So read the Word of God, it says, um, And when a great crowd was gathered, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path, and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and grew, and yielded a a hundredfold. And he said these things, and as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you uh, for all the creative ways, Lord, that you have spoken to us. Uh, We thank you for um, your revealed word, Lord, that uh, gives us truth, gives us a foundation to build our lives off of. Um, God, I pray this morning that your word is heard. Lord, guard my lips from any falsehoods, Lord. Um, I pray that you're just with us as um, uh, we preach your word, Lord. Let this be an act of worship. Your son's name. Amen. This is the, the parable of the sower. Most of us are familiar with this parable. Um, I've heard it, heard it read and explained probably um, if you grew up in the church. Um, but I wanted to start today and just ask the question, what is a parable? It's a, a question that I don't know if we um, sit and think about. Uh, what is a parable? The word parable actually is two Greek words put together. Para, which means alongside. It's where we get parallel from alongside, and balo, which means to throw. And so when you put those two words together, parable literally means to throw alongside, to throw alongside. A parable is a simple life story that is thrown alongside a spiritual truth. It is a story with two levels of meaning. A simple uh, surface level, an illustration, and a deeper spiritual truth. Parables are not allegories, meaning not every aspect of the story is meant to convey some deeper meaning. A parable, unlike an allegory, has one central truth it's trying to get across. One main spiritual lesson. So the best definition I think I found is this. A parable is an ingeniously simple word picture revealing a profound spiritual lesson. So that's what a parable is. Maybe a better question that we should ask this morning is, why parables? Why parables? Why did Jesus teach in parables? There's some interesting answers out there as I was looking this up. I think most people would say that they think Jesus spoke in parables to teach clearly. A commentator said this, Many assume that Jesus told parables for one reason only, to make his teaching as easy, accessible, and comfortable as possible. After all, the parables were full of familiar features, easy, recognizable scenes, agricultural and pastoral uh, metaphors, household items, and common people. This would naturally make his words simple, 
simpler for his audience to relate to and grasp. And that sounds fair. But if you look at Luke 8, 9, verse 9, Jesus said, this is why I speak in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So that they may not see, and they may not understand. Many people think that Jesus mostly or only spoke in parables. And there are a lot of parables in the Gospels. But if you really look at it, Matthew doesn't start speaking, or doesn't have Jesus start speaking in parables until chapter 13, which is almost halfway through the book. And there's not very many parables in, in um, Mark until chapter 4, which is a fourth of the way through the book, and Luke till chapter 8. We're just now starting to talk about parables. And I don't know if you guys realize this, but there's not one single parable in the whole book of, of John, the whole Gospel of John, not one. On top of that, Jesus' most comprehensive teaching was a sermon on, a mount, on the mount. It wasn't a parable, it was a sermon. Some people think that parables are the way we should be teaching today. Parables are Jesus' model for teaching. That all teaching should be in narrative form or in story form or dramatic in dramas of some sort, in, in movies or, or, or stories. But Jesus not only spoke in parables, he also spoke plainly and clearly in sermons, like the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. But, but he spoke clearly, especially to his disciples. Mark 8.31 says he began to teach. Well, how do you teach? He said this plainly, it says. He taught plainly to his disciples. Mark 4.34 says his own disciples, he explained everything. Luke 24, 37 said he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. He interpreted scriptures to his disciples. Also, the Bible is very clear that we are called to, to preach and teach prepositional truths. They're important. That sound doctrine is important. Titus 2, 1 says, but as for you, teach. This is instructions to pastors and elders and those that teach in the church. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach clear, sound doctrine. Titus 1, 9, this is the qualifications of an elder, of a pastor, of a preacher. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instructions in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, the elder's responsibility in the church is to, to teach clear, sound doctrine and rebuke what is not clear, sound doctrine. That's why sometimes we're, when me and Britt get up here, we'll mention movies or books or teachers or teachings that are not sound doctrine. We are called to rebuke it. It's part of our job. So why did Jesus speak in parables? This is, this is a good question. The disciples asked the same thing. In frustration, Matthew 13, 10 says, the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? Why parables? Well, I believe there's something special about the parable of the sower that I, I believe it's key to understanding parables as a whole. One of the responses to the disciples in Mark 4.13 in their questioning why parables was this. Jesus said, do, do you not understand this parable, the parable of the sower? How then will you understand all parables? 
In other words, if you can't understand the parable of the sower, you're not going to be able to understand parables. So let's take a look at the parable of the sower. Starting in verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, Stop right there. A great crowd. This is a, a massive crowd. Mark 4.1 says a, a very large crowd gathered. Luke said town after town came to him. And this is understandable that, that this massive crowd was coming. This was the height of Jesus' ministry. People were in awe of Jesus' teaching. He taught with wisdom. He taught with insight. But he also taught with authority. He taught with ultimate authority. He says, the scripture says this, but I say to you, elevating his teaching with scripture, ultimate authority. And people were in awe of that. And not only did he teach that way, but he backed up his teaching with miracles. Casting out demons, healing leopards, healing the paralyzed, walking into towns, whole cities, and healing everyone. And he didn't do this privately. He did it in front of the crowds. And so Jesus was becoming somewhat of a spectacle. They came to see what he would do next. I mean, who knows what this guy is going to do next? All this authority and power. Therefore, town after town came to him. Such a large crowd that it says that they pushed him into a boat on the, on the sea. Matthew 13, 2 says this, And a great crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. I want you to picture that, this massive crowd on the beach, Jesus on a boat, teaching. The water would act as a natural amplifier, so this large, massive crowd could actually hear what Jesus was saying. There were so many people. And Jesus said in a parable, verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seeds. Can you imagine just the scene? Right, people town after town coming to hear this man with this profound insight, this man with these miracles that taught authoritatively, that, that spoke these sermons that were incredible. Everybody was, was ready for him to say something profound. And he tells a story of a farmer. A riddle. I mean, there's great anticipation, and, and he tells a riddle. And Jesus says, verse 5, look at this. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. This story, or this parable, was an extremely familiar story to, to uh, ag, um, agricultural culture. Uh, they would have seen sowers and farmers uh, every day doing this, or at least in the, the right seasons doing this. Fortunately for us, we live in a, a very similar climate to Israel. I don't know if you realize this, but California and Israel are very similar in the climate, both very dry, very dependent on rain, as we've learned these last few years. To the west of us is, a, is an ocean. To the west of Israel is a sea. Rain comes from the ocean and sea and cool western winds. To the east of us is mountains. On the other side of the mountains is desert. If there's an east wind coming the other direction, the Santa Ana's, where we have dry weather, hot weather, very similar. Therefore, we can picture the scene decently well, thankfully. 
I mean, as a sower went and sowed seed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. What happens in Tehachapi if you walk in the same place over and over and over again? My dog was getting out of the yard, and we didn't know exactly where. Eventually, he just didn't care if we were watching or not and jumped right over. But we started seeing a path in the weeds. Like, oh. You walk in the same place over and over again, you see a path. We were, we were on a hike uh, yesterday, and it was just so beautifully green, but we knew exactly where to walk because there was a path where no seeds, no weeds, no plants were growing. So many people walked along that path. The ground gets too hard. And if the seeds fall on that ground, it won't seep in, and therefore the birds come and devour it. The other day I was trying to get some grass to grow in some of our dead spots in my yard. I know this parable, so I'm pulling up, getting the ground soft, put seeds in it. Next morning, wake up, there's like 100 birds in my backyard. (laughs) Verse 6. And some seed fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Israel, this is a little different. Um, There was huge sheets of limestone that were just a few inches deep in Israel, and, and, and the, there was a shallow top layer of soil, so you could plant plants and it would start to grow just like everywhere else. But as the sun would come and beat down on these plants, the, the roots were not deep enough because of the rock, so it would wither and die. The roots couldn't get past the rock, couldn't get to the cooler water that, that was um, underneath the top soil. And so the plants would grow like all the other plants, but then you'd see a big dead spot and the farmer would know there's a big of limestone underneath that dead spot. Verse 7. And some fell along the thorns, among the thorns, and the thorns uh, grew up with it and choked it. Right? These are the weeds. And that's self-explanatory in Tehachapi. Man, if we have two things, it's oak trees and weeds in Tehachapi. Um, we have high schoolers that make small fortunes of weed whacking um, weeds grow better and faster than anything. And if you let weeds just grow around the plants you want to grow, they're going to choke out those plants and kill them. Verse 8. And some fell into good soil, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. Some seed fell in good, weedless, fertile soil. Those seeds turned into plants. Those plants produced fruit. That fruit yielded a profit. And that prophet was a hundredfold. The story was extremely familiar. It's like me saying, a mom went to Save Mart yesterday and grabbed some apples, some milk, and some eggs, and came home. Only thing surprising, and this is true in every one of Jesus' parables. I can't think of one that this is not true for. Um, they're, they're so brilliant when you start studying them. They, they, they're simple stories, extremely familiar, and then he'll throw a twist or something that is somewhat believable, but almost unbelievable. And, and you're like, whoa, that's different. That's not how it would normally go. And a lot of times it's hard to see that twist because of our cultural differences. So you have to study and figure, figure it out. Like, what, what is surprising in this story? For this story, everything was just normal besides the yielding. A hundredfold was in, an amazing return for farmers. If you got tenfold for your, your profit for what you have farmed, I mean, that is a great return in this culture, in this time. But a hundredfold? 
That's 10 times a grade. I mean, that's, that's unheard of. That was a massive growth. That was a massive return. So a normal story with that weird little twist in it. And Jesus ends with this statement. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's it. This uh, last phrase is in the imperfect tense in Greek. And that tense means a continuous action. He who has ears, let him hear. Or he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Meaning, keep hearing. Continue to hear. Don't stop hearing. So that's the parable of the sower. I want to talk about the purpose of parables. The purpose of this parable. The purpose of why Jesus spoke in parables to the crowd. Verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, Matthew shows a little bit more of the frustration of the, the, um, the disciples at this point. They asked him, why do you speak to them in parables? And I want you to think about the disciples. Right? Here's these men that have been following Jesus, thinking, this guy may be the Messiah. He's doing these miracles. He may be the seed that the Old Testament is pointing to. This is an exciting time. We are friends with the Messiah. But remember, what type of Messiah were they expecting? A warrior Messiah, a conquering Messiah. One that would build an army and lead that army against the Romans and the Gentiles and all the other nations and establish Israel as the one and true and only kingdom of kingdoms, nation of nations. So I want you to remember the context because at this point, Jesus has done powerful miracles and and has proven his authority, but they've all been to help, to heal. There's been no signs of aggression Honestly, through all the Gospels, the only sign of aggression, I think, that you see is to a fig tree. And that's it. At this point, no aggression. So remember the context. Here's Jesus, a massive crowd. He gets on a boat, almost like a general. He's on the shore. He's on the boat. The crowd's on the shore. The disciples are thinking, this is it. We've got the crowd. It's clear that they want to make Jesus Jesus king. We see that in the other Gospels. They're ready to fight. It's perfect time. This is it. There's excitement. And Jesus starts talking in riddles. The excitement of the disciples turns into frustration. And they say, why do you speak to them in parables? Don't you know, Jesus, this is the moment? He answers them in verse 10. To you... It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they're in parables. So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. In other words, Jesus is purposely hiding the truth and is exactly what that sounds like. He's saying, I am hiding the truth in parables. And that's obvious in the phrase. You know, a lot of people have trouble. This is one of the hard sayings of Jesus in the Gospels because the question is, Why? Why hide the truth, Jesus? Why do you want to hide the truth to this crowd? Well, I think there's a hint in Matthew 13. Can you turn your scriptures over to Matthew 13? This is a parallel text to Luke 8. The synoptic gospels all um, are very detailed in this, this time where Jesus starts speaking in parables. 
And so to get a fuller picture of what's going on, um, you can use all the Gospels. And thankfully, Jesus, or God has given us four witnesses of the time of Jesus to get a full picture of the ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so a little bit more information. I think there's a little bit more light shed in, in Matthew 13. There's a hint. Hint in Matthew 13. Let me just read it. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat um, beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and he tells the parable of the sower. Did you guys see the, the hint? Look at verse 1. That same day. Matthew is pointing back to something that happened on that day. Before this day, Jesus, when he was in his public ministry, taught clearly to everyone. After this day in the Gospels, his public ministry was in parables only. Matthew 13, 34 even says, And these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Crowds got parables clear teaching privately to his disciples. What happened? What happened on this day? Well, let's start reviewing the day and see what happened. Of course, it was a Sabbath day. And Pastor Brent preached on this a, a few weeks ago that the Sabbath day for the legalists was the best day of the week. For the legalists, it was, it was a day to prove how he kept the law perfectly. A day to prove his self-righteousness. There are so many man-made laws that only the, the, the Pharisees and the legalists of legalists could, could keep them. So Matthew, let's look at Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And you're not going to find a, a law in Scripture that says this. This is a man-made law. The Pharisees and the, the Jews have made a bunch of man-made laws that the, the crowds had to, or the Jewish people were supposed to keep. And this is a typical day for Jesus. It's a typical Sabbath day. He's purposely breaking these man-made laws to show the absurdity of the man-made laws to show that the Pharisees weren't keeping Scripture, but the laws they've added to Scripture. And this typical day ended typically too. The Pharisees furious at Jesus because Jesus pointed out their hypocrisy and their lack of understanding of the Scriptures. Now look at verse 9 of chapter 12. Matthew twelve nine. He went from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now look down at verse 13. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. It's an amazing miracle. Right? This was no headache. This was no backache. This was a deformed hand that Jesus said, be normal, and it was, just like his other hand. 
in, the, in, the, in front of everyone. Look at 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus did just healed a man miraculously, undeniably, and now they wanted to kill him. This conflict, I hope you're seeing, and this is Matthew's point in this chapter, the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees are escalating. The Pharisees are so furious with Jesus, they wanted him dead, and they're starting to plan on how to do it. Now look at Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Jesus didn't just cast out a demon. He did another amazing miracle, an undeniable miracle. A man that was mute and blind can see, can speak. So remarkable, look at verse 23, that all the people were amazed and said, this, this, could this be the son of David? Can this be the Messiah? Can this be the man that the, the Old Testament is promising us? Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, remember what happened. A man healed, demon cast out. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. It's only by Satan that this man cast out demons. I want you to just think about this, what the Pharisees are claiming. Right? Feel the weight of this. Jesus' authority to cast out demons, to heal people, the Pharisees said, that's Satan. It's the power of Satan you're using. I mean, think about this. They are face-to-face with God. They're hearing God's word from God himself. They are seeing the power of God the Spirit on display. Instead of listening, instead of praising God, they said, that's Satan. That's evil. They were calling good evil and thereby calling evil good. They were calling God Satan. To his face, they were calling God Satan, and thereby following Satan as their God. This blasphemy by the, the, the Pharisees was at such a scale that Jesus condemns them for eternity on the spot. Skip to verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. This blasphemy by by the Pharisees was so bad. Look at verse 34. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speak. Verse 37 By your words, you will be condemned. Jesus had enough. He pronounces judgment and damnation on the Pharisees on the spot. This is what one commentator said about this passage. That was the final breathtaking reply to these lying, blaspheming, religious counterfeits. Their sin was so scandalous and so hateful 
that Jesus damned them forever on the spot. In essence, he gave the entire multitude a preview of his, his accuser's final judgment. The one to whom all judgment has been committed formally pronounced them guilty. His verdict against them was rendered publicly, emphatically, and with absolute finality. They were now sealed forever in the darkness and hardness of heart they had chosen for themselves. Just a few chapters earlier in chapter 11, Jesus pronounced judgment on whole cities for the rejection of, of Jesus, the face-to-face, the miracles that they saw, and them rejecting them. He says, woe, which is, a, which is a word of judgment. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. You will be brought down to Hades. Jesus pronounced judgment on these cities. Now Jesus is damning the Pharisees forever on the spot. That same day, Matthew 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables. He was done teaching plain truths. Publicly. From this point on, in the public, he only spoke in parables. So that seeing, they may not see, and hearing, they may not hear. Why parables? It was a pronouncement of judgment on those who can't hear the truth of God's, or truth of Jesus' teaching because they refuse to hear. And Jesus makes this very clear. Look at Matthew 13, 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Verse 14, indeed, in the case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. That says, Jesus quotes uh, here Isaiah 6, 8 through 10. And he says, today, this prophecy has been fulfilled. This is what it says. You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts have grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Jesus says, the parables are fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. So to understand a little bit more deeply, let's turn to Isaiah and see what was going on. Turn to Isaiah chapter 5. You're going to see familiar language in Isaiah chapter 5 to the gospel section here in Matthew. The first part of Isaiah is pronouncement of judgment on Israel. Chapter 5, verse 8, a familiar word that we've already talked about, woe. Woe to those. It's a pronouncement of judgment on Israel. Woe to those. Woe to you, Israel. Verse 11, woe to those who rise up early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquities with cords of falsehoods. 
Verse 21, woe to those who are, are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. And then verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. This prophecy was prophesied 500 years, over 500 years before the Gospels. Look at Isaiah 6. We're familiar with Isaiah 6. Right? This is the vision of Isaiah in the throne room. We have a lot of songs. If you're not familiar, you probably have heard songs about this, this vision that Isaiah had in the throne room of God. But let me just read it. It'll sound familiar. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year um, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You look at verse 3. The angels were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled of his glory. You get down to verse 8, and this is the end of the vision. Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Who will go preach to Israel? This is after uh, Isaiah has been forgiven for his sins, and he's had this amazing experience, and God revealed his glory to him, and, and God says, who will go preach for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me, I will go preach. In my college graduation, uh, with my bachelor's degree, this was our uh, commission verse. Who shall I send, and who will go for us? And all of us that were graduating said, here I am, send me. That was kind of the, the point. After studying this passage, I wonder if they knew the context when they picked it. Because God says in verse 9, listen, and he, this is God, said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. God is telling Isaiah, Israel is not going to listen to you. They're not going to hear you. You're going to go to Israel. You're going to preach my word. You're going to, to go and preach, and they're not going to hear a thing and listen to a thing. They're going to reject you. They're going to reject the preaching, therefore they're rejecting me. But this leads to a question. Why preach then? Well, God answers, verse 10. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Isaiah, your preaching is going to act as judgment against Israel. Because they won't listen. They can't listen. They can't hear you. They won't hear you. And Isaiah's response is appropriate. Look at 11. Then I said, how long, O Lord? I mean, this is going to be hard. I'm thankful to preach at a church. You guys are so encouraging. And 99% of the stuff I get is encouraging, but it's that 1% that sticks. The one email that you get, that's all Isaiah got. He preached to a, a people that would not hear, that would not listen, that would persecute him. 
And so he says, how long, O Lord? And he, being God, said, until cities lie in waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. Until Israel is judged, you preach until they're judged. You preach until there's exile. Isaiah's preaching would act as a judgment against the people of Israel. And the proof of that judgment was the inability to hear Isaiah's message. The refusal to hear Isaiah's message, the word of God. Therefore, when Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, he is saying, I speak in parables to judge those that will not listen. Parables are a form of judgment. They're a form of judgment. Jesus started his ministry with plain, clear teachings. Example is the Sermon on the Mount. The crowds and the Pharisees rejected the clear teaching. Therefore, in judgment, Jesus hid the truth in the form of speaking in parables. Jesus' teaching for the proud and the arrogant became meaningless riddles. That's it. But, but, to those that humbled themselves and asked Jesus for the meaning, they were given the secrets of the kingdom of God. For God's chosen, for God's elect, They were given the secrets, the grace. They were given the secrets of the kingdom because God gave them humble hearts. He gave them humble hearts to the point that they simply came and asked him what the meaning was. And Mark 4, 34 says, He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. A humble, regenerate heart. That's the good soil. It's a heart that hears and understands. It's a heart that, that seeks the meaning of God's word. It's a heart of flesh. It's the good soil. And so Jesus, turn back to Matt, uh, Luke 8 now, verse 11. Jesus explains the parable of the sower. Because the disciples in verse 9 ask what the meaning was. And in Jesus' explanation, and to be clear too, the arrogant would never ask Jesus the meaning. The arrogant would never seek out the truth. The arrogant think they know something. But the humble, those that have humble hearts, ask Jesus and Jesus explains. Verse 11, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God, right? That's simple. The word of God is seed. It's fun. It's, it's, it's sowed. And it's the word of God that is heard. It's heard. Look at verse 12. The end of verse 12 said, who has heard? It's the word of God being preached. It's the word of God being, being preached. The good news being preached. It's when you share the gospel to those in the community. It's when the word is preached from the pulpit. It's the preaching of the gospel. It's what Isaiah and Jesus were doing. The seed is the word of God. Verse 12. The ones along the path 
are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Uh, the seeds along the path, this is the hard soil. Right? These are hard hearts. So hard that the word of God doesn't seep in at all. It bounces right off the hearts because they refuse to hear. This is the most hopeless soil. In hearing the word of God, they actually hear nothing because they're preoccupied with the love of sin or worse, have pure hatred toward the things of God and toward the word of God. This soil doesn't receive the word. It even calls the word of God evil. This, of course, was the Pharisees. They heard Jesus' teaching. They heard the word of God preached, sowed from God himself. They saw the miracles that backed up the words. They witnessed firsthand the deity of Christ. And the Pharisee says, that's, that's from the devil. That's Satan. That's evil. Ironically, it's actually the devil who comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. This is not some mystical word picture that actually happens. This is, this is explained in Scripture. How does the devil come and, and take away the word from our hearts? Well, one commentator said this, If you think the devil's works are always obviously diabolical, you're going to be fooled by him. He uses deceit. He is a liar and the father of it, John eight forty four. He transforms, transforms, transforms himself and his servants as angels of light and ministers of righteousness. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen through 15. He confuses people through false teachers and false teaching who come in Christ's names but quietly attack or undermine the gospel of Christ. He also exploits human passions, fear of man, pride, stubbornness. This was the Pharisees. They, they feared man's opinions. They were prideful and they were stubborn and or various lusts. He appeals to the fallen heart's love for the pleasures of sin. He knows that people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, John three nineteen, And he takes advantage of that. It is easy for him to make himself appealing to those that love darkness. Then having gained the sinner's trust and attention, he diverts the mind from the truth of the word, effectively snatching it away from the person's awareness. That's the hard soil. The rocky soil, verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe it for a while, and in time of testing, fall away emotionally accept the gospel, receive the word of God with joy, it says. Then testing hits and they fall away. There's no deep roots. The plant bursts forth in joy, but then falls away. We know this extremely well, right? This time of year, it looks like Ireland around Tehachapi. But our green hills will eventually turn into golden hills. And our plants that are growing wildly are all going to die. In the same way, some people accept the gospel message with great joy. Then the scorching heat of testing hits and they wither and die. It's a false faith. We see this in summer camps all the time. We go to Hume every year and 
uh, we see during the gospel night, emotional, joyous time. And I talk to some of the youth pastors, say, hey, you have a couple guys standing up. That's awesome. He says, it is awesome. But they stand up every year. And then I don't hear from them again until him sign-ups come again around. For the seeds that went into the thorns, verse 14, and for those... And as for what fell along the thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Mark 4, 19 says this, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Seems like a genuine acceptance of the gospel, the word of God, genuine salvation, heard the word, proclaims belief, but the desires of the world choke the faith. John MacArthur in this book says, nothing is more hostile to the truth of the gospel than the love of riches and pleasures of this world. A great biblical example would be the rich young ruler who knew something was wrong, came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? There's something else I need to do. And Jesus says, love me more than this world. Go sell all your riches and follow me. And he said, I can't do it. The thorns and the weeds of this world choked out the word of God, and he went away sorrowful. The good soil, verse 15. As for that, is, um, as for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, Hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is a good soil. It's a believing soil. It's a humble soil. It's a persevering soil. It's a fruit-bearing soil. Listen, the Bible's clear. There's only, there's only two signs for, for salvation of true conversion, perseverance and fruit. John eight thirty one says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed him, If you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. A sign of true salvation, a sign of a true, regenerate, born-again, heart-of-flesh life is perseverance and fruit. Look at verse 15. Hearing the word of God, hearing the gospel, holding fast to it as their only hope, continuing to hold fast to it, bearing fruit with patience. I know this parable is called the, the parable of the sower. It's kind of misleading. I, I think a better name would be the parable of the four different soils. Only one had true saving faith. And the evidence of that is perseverance and fruit. Only one soil produced fruit. So this leads to the question, this is the application for today. What separated the good soil from the others? What was different about the good soil? And the application, I think, is found in one word that's repeated throughout this chapter. Look at, open up to chapter 8. I just want you to see this. In verse 10, there's a word that's just repeated. On purpose by Luke, on purpose by Jesus as he was teaching. Verse 10 says this, To you it has been, been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parable, so that seeing they may not see and hearing, they may not understand. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6 again, and he uses the word akuo, which means hearing. Akuo. Verse 12, Those besides the road 
um, are those who have heard Akuo. Verse 13, those on the rocky soil, when they hear, verse 14, the seeds which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And verse 15, the seed in the good soil, hearing the word of God. Here's the application. It's simple. Hear. Listen. Listen to the word of God. It's what Jesus commanded in verse 8. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's not a suggestion. It's imperative. It's a command. Let him hear. In other words, listen. It's exactly how the Gospel of Mark starts this parable. Just one word. Listen in an imperative form. Akuo, hear. And Luke keeps going, too. Outside of the parable. Look at verse 18. Take care how you hear. This is a warning. Take care how you hear, for the one who has, more will be given. The one who hears, this is the good soil. Hears Jesus' teaching, hears his parables, hears the word of God, seeks understanding when they're confused. The one who produces fruit, who hears the word and does it, more will be given. More understanding will be given. More fruit will be given. And for the one who has not, the one that does not hear, the other soils, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. The one that thinks he knows, the prideful, the arrogant, the Pharisees, the crowd who wouldn't listen to the word of God, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. And Luke doesn't stop there. Look at verse 19. Then his mothers and his brothers came to him, but they they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mothers and your brother, or your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. This is Mary and his brothers. This is his biological family that were coming to see Jesus. Verse 21. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it, produce fruit. Jesus is saying, my family are those that hear God's word. My family are those that accept it with faith. My family are those that hear it and do it, produce fruit. So here's my question this morning. Do you hear the word of God? Are you listening with humble hearts? Are you willing to do whatever the word of God says? Because Jesus says, those are my true brothers and sisters. Those are the ones that are truly in the family of God. Those are the ones that are truly saved. Do you want to be the good soil? Then hear. Hear humbly. Hear faithfully. Hear willingly. Hear acceptingly. Here, by seeking out understanding, even if the understanding is hard to get, that you're digging deeply and asking questions, looking for the understanding of God's word. Here. But of course, hearing starts by putting your faith in Christ. Listen, if you've never put your faith in Christ this morning, I don't know everyone in here, so I'm not going to assume that everyone hears. 
If you haven't put your faith in Christ, here's some bad news. We have all sinned. We all deserve the judgment that, that Jesus pronounced on the Pharisees. But here's the good news. In love, God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, a sinless life, perfect obedience, and then die on the cross for our sins. On the third day, he was raised. And if you put your faith in that, you can be saved. If you hold fast to that truth, you can be part of the family of God. Can you hear this morning? Do you hear this morning? Are you refusing to hear this morning? Well, you're one of the soils. I pray that we're all the good soil. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, it is humbling to realize that you spoke to us, that you have revealed yourself to us in intimate fashion, that you have given us your word proclaimed in, in, from the pulpit, proclaimed from people's mouths out in the community, proclaimed from mother and father, and proclaimed from friends, family members, cousins, and also written down so we can read. Help us to hear it. Help us to have humble hearts, Lord. If there's any hearts of stone in, in this room, Lord, I pray that you change them to hearts of flesh. Bring spiritual life, Lord, so they can hear your word. Eternity's on the balance. Lord, for those that do have hearts of flesh, regenerate hearts, Lord, bring humility. Bring an eagerness to, to learn more and more and more about you through your word. God, I pray that you cultivate the soils in this room, the hearts in this room, to love you. In your son's name, amen.